This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena. UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever going to get to the bottom of these? My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't. I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason, people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weaponized. Weaponized. George, good to see you. And you, Jeremy. (laughs) This is unexpected. Uh, Well, you know, we've been asked to do a lot of podcasts over the years as guests. We've been asked to host them as well. And finally, we decided the time was right and go ahead and do it. And it's called Weaponized. Why did you come up with that name? Why did you come up with that name? Come on, man. It's a horrible name. I mean, you have used that word, that term before, and it works. I mean, it's it's a good grabby word, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, everybody hates it when I say it. But it was born from, I said in some interview, my curiosity has been weaponized. And that, that just stuck with me. People were haunting me with it. So, so I, I embraced it. But, but I think the point for you and me both is there are things that just keep us up at night. Things that we can't put down, like for 35 years studying UFOs, 40 years, whatever you've been doing. So for me, the title weaponized is that there are these things that we can't put down that keep us up at night. And, and on this show, we're going to cover all the things that, that do that to us, that, that excite us. That, that was my thinking. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we are identified uh, on purpose with the UFO subject, and we certainly are going to be talking about UFOs and all of its various ramifications, but that's not all that we're going to cover in this program. Right, right. And, and I want to start there a little bit for people that don't know you. You know, I mean, the, the big question, like, who is George Knapp? How do we find him, you know, sitting here in the seat? So I know George Knapp as investigative reporter out of Las Vegas, Nevada. I mean, that was my introduction to looking for you. It was, it was through UFOs, trying to find you. So can you give us a, a few, you know, kind of key points for people that don't know you? Uh, I am uh, based in Las Vegas. I started in 1981 at KLAS-TV as a general assignment reporter. I then became an anchor, commentator. In the mid-90s, the the station created uh, the I-Team, the investigative unit. And since 1995, I've been the chief investigative reporter. And in those years, you know, Las Vegas is the best news town in America, and I've covered everything. I've covered uh, the mob, organized crime, the exorcism of all the mobsters, uh, political scandals, corruption, uh, government officials, uh, celebrities, murders, bikers, fires, every kind of story you can imagine in this great news town. Uh, but since 1987, I've been known as the UFO reporter. And, you know, it comes with the territory. It's my own fault for that. No matter what other story I've done and what other awards I've won, and I've won a lot of them, national awards, uh, Peabody's, DuPont, Edward R. Murrow, 28 regional Emmys, a bunch of other stuff. But 
no matter what story I do, no matter how big it is, I'm the UFO guy. And it's my own fault. Because in 1987, a guy named John Lear walked into the TV station. And he had a stack of documents, turned out to be UFO documents, and he dropped them on the desk of my managing editor, my good buddy, my, my, my running partner, Ned Day, who was the principal muckraker investigative reporter of his era. Ned worked with my news director at the time, Robert Stodall, the most important newsman in probably the modern history of journalism in Nevada. Those guys had a long-standing interest in a place called Area 51. And they had tried to get me interested in it as well. In the mid-1980s, the U.S. Air Force illegally seized 89,000 acres of land around Area 51. One day, it's public land, and anybody get drive up there. The next day, you'd run into armed guards. It's off limits. Only months later did they ask for permission. So we all had an idea. Something really interesting was going on in the desert out there. And Lear had helped Bob and Ned break a really big story about the existence of a plane that was invisible to radar. Seems preposterous at the time, but Lear had given information to Ned and Bob. They broke the story before any of the national news organizations did. So Lear had a certain credibility with, with those guys. His father, of course, Bill Lear, had developed the 8-track tape and the Lear jet. John had run for public office. He had flown for the seat. CIA, he was a really interesting guy, comes into the station with a stack of documents, tells Ned, this is an even bigger story than the stealth fighter, Ned. This is going to make your career. It's about the UFO cover-up, biggest story in history. Here's the documentation to prove it. Ned paws through the documents, takes a look at a couple of the pages, and then pushes it back at Lear and says, look, I'm not touching this. If this was true, I'd already know about it. Kind of cocky, like Ned yeah, was yeah. in those days. So Lear kind of dejectedly grabs up his pile. He's walking out of the newsroom. I had been eavesdropping, which I tend to do. And I said, hey, let me take a look at that. So he left the pile with me. I read through it. These are documents obtained through FOIA. You know, prior to the existence of FOIA created in the in 1970s, if you asked uh, the FBI or CIA or Pentagon, hey, have you got any documents about UFOs? They'd say, no, and we're not going to give them to you. Yeah. And uh, they deny it. After FOIA becomes the law of the land, thousands of pages of, of documentation were forced out of uh, the government and into the hands of UFO investigators and researchers. So that's the primary uh, composition of that pile. I thought, well, this is really interesting because, you know, we all have the same kind of level of interest in UFOs. I wonder if that's true, but, but never really dug into it. Right, but you had, you were not a UFO guy no. before that. You hadn't spent a lot of time when you were young thinking no. about this. Is You're just, a, at this point, a news reporter and a new news reporter, and you're just eavesdropping on your boss, and you hear this, and it excites yeah. you. Yeah, so there had been some stories in my family that I'll tell someday, but just not today. So I had, a, I had an interest in it, but I had no UFO books. I think I might own one that had been given to me as a present, had not done any research. But I started looking at these, I thought, this is really interesting, because the story at the time, as told by our government, is there's nothing to it. We've investigated it. It's all been explained, Project Blue Book. Uh, go on your way, don't worry about this at all. These documents showed that was a much different picture behind the scenes, that in fact, military officials were very concerned about this. They recognized it's a legitimate issue, that these are not ours, they're not Russians, they're from somewhere else, they might be extraterrestrial. I thought, great, I'll, maybe I'll just dig into this. And at the time, I produced a little on the, uh, a program called On the Record, a half-hour public affairs show Typically, I would interview a county commissioner or a city commissioner, something like that. It aired at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday or Sunday. Very limited audience. I thought, 
what the heck, I'll put Lear on the show, see what he does. And I put him on and just wound him up and let him go. And holy cow, I was blown away. I mean, that's a that's a pretty famous clip now. You got out of nowhere, you got this guy coming at you, you know, telling you all this shit about UFOs. And I just remember looking at your face in these original <laughs> interviews and the, it was almost like disdain. You're like, you couldn't believe what he was saying. You're almost like angry about some of what he said because it was so outrageous. But apparently you, you changed your attitude later on. So what happened after that interview? Well, you know, he, he unleashes this barrage, this incredibly elaborate conspiracy theory, the, the Lear white paper that is now known in UFO circles about we've got a secret treaty with aliens and they, we allow them to abduct people and in exchange for technology and all kinds of cover-up stuff and assassinations. And I was blown away. I thought, well, did I make a mistake in doing this? But all, he gets off the show. Uh, thanks, John. That was really interesting. And my phone starts ringing and people start inquiring, what was that about? Who was that guy? Is this real? And it kept ringing. And I realized, you know, at the time, well, this this is of interest to the public here. Mm -hmm. So I had him on again. I started reading a little bit more about it. I uh, went up to see Lear. He gave me a bunch of more documents from his files. And I had him on again uh, some months later. So, so, you, so you you realized the public was interested in this. You had never had a response like that. I had no idea. And then the second time I had him on, the response was even bigger. That's when it really set in that this topic touches the pulse of the public in a way that I did not understand before or appreciate. Had him on a third time with a guy named Bill Cooper. And we'll talk about that at some point in, on, the, on well, Weaponized. Why, why did it grasp the public imagination at that time, do you think, so severely that Lear was saying all this stuff about UFOs? Why do you think the public was going crazy for you it? You know, I, I didn't understand it at the time. I understand a lot more now is that this is a fundamental question of whether we are alone in the universe. And the public really is, is also motivated by the idea that they've been lied to. I know that that is what motivated me in the beginning. The idea that these documents show that the government and the military in particular have a much different opinion about UFOs behind the scenes than the one that they've been sharing with the public. And it pissed me off These were been lying to us. These were official documents. Yeah, these are FOIA documents. So you got, you got really bit by this when you're seeing the dichotomy between these official documents from our government talking about UFOs and how they told you they were nonsense. And you're like, fuck this. Yeah. So I had them on a third time. The response was big again. I thought, you know, and in that third show... Lear hints about something that's out there in the Nevada desert, reverse engineering of flying saucers, alien craft that are being taken apart to figure out how they work. And I thought that's a pretty outrageous claim. Uh, but in light of the things that he had told us before that turned out to be true, maybe we should look at it. And he hinted that he knew a guy who'd been hired to work at a place uh, near Area 51. I didn't know who this guy was. Six months go by. I'm anchoring the five o'clock news. And we have a five-minute live interview segment every day on the news. It was, you know, newsmakers, celebrities. Uh, our guest of that day canceled at the last minute, uh, maybe an hour and a half before the show. I called up Lear. I thought, hey, you know, you told me about your UFO guy who's going to go to work out this base. Do you think he might talk to me? I had no idea who Lazar, Bob Lazar was. I had no idea what had been going on in his life. But what had been happening was, had unfolded, it was a very dramatic personal odyssey for him. And he was afraid he, at the time he was going to be killed um, because he'd been out there and had seen this amazing technology. Would your guy come on the show? And boom, it was not 30 minutes later, uh, Lazar, 
I didn't know his name at the time, was on his way to Lear's house. We sent a live unit up there, set up an interview, and at five o'clock, we let it spill out into people's uh, 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 living rooms on uh, via television. And he told this amazing story. I had no idea what he was going to say, but he tells this story that there was a secret program that he worked for the U.S. Navy, that the base was a place called S-4, uh, adjacent to Papoose Dry Lake, south of Area 51, or south of Groom Lake, rather, and that built into the side of the mountain were these hangars, and that inside the hangars were nine flying saucers, flying discs, as if we had the variety pack, and that we were taking them apart to figure out how they work. This is alien technology. It's not American technology. And wow, just blew everyone away. And I think you treated it, you know, from seeing those historic interviews, because that, that is how I got interested in this subject was, you know, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit, but just hearing you and Lazar and, and the broadcast. But what I noticed, and I still notice now, I look back, you treated it like news. You didn't like everybody else just say, oh, this is bullshit. I'm going to make some joke. You said, okay, th you know, thank you for being here. Thanks for reporting in. He was in silhouette. But the way you treated it made us think, wait, wait a second, let's look at this guy. Now, you didn't believe Lazar right off the bat. No, 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 no. I thought it was outrageous. But I thought, you know, Lear has led us down this road and some of what he's told us has turned out to be true. And this guy, Lazar, whoever he was, sounded pretty credible. Uh, we asked him some pointed questions about his background and who he worked for and how it w operated and how they're able to keep this a secret. And he had good answers. And it didn't seem like he was making it up. So we get off the set. Um, the news director pulls me in. The general manager comes rolling in and go, what the hell was that? Is that real? Is, it for sh is he telling the truth? I said, I have no idea, but I'm going to find out. Yeah. That weekend, uh, Bob Stodall and I go up to Lear's house. We said, we're going to meet this guy. And we go to Lear's house and there was some back and forth gamesmanship that was played, but eventually get to meet Lazar. We put him through his paces, ask him questions for three, four hours. And he had good answers about his background, about what he did out there, about the technology. Stodal and I leave that meeting looking at each other going, holy crap. I mean, what if this is real? This would be the biggest story in history. And it's right here in our backyard. We got to look into it. Stodal says, you know, maybe we could do a, a multi-part series like five minutes a night. That's only funny because we end up doing a nine-part series, 13, 14 minutes a piece, the longest uh, stories I ever produced for television. And, and uh, so I started, and, and I started. In the next seven and a half, eight months, I dug full-time into UFOs. And I thought to tell the story of Bob Lazar, I had to understand the bigger picture, the history of UFOs, separate wheat from chaff. Who's credible? Who is it? What lies has the military told? What is the paper trail? That is really what hooked me is the paper trail, the documents that we've just been talking about that indicate they know a lot more than that, what they've told us. So, and, and you thought you were going to crack the story. Yeah, I, I was cocky the at the UFO time. The UFO story, you're going to yeah, crack I thought, it. You know, I'm reading, I read everything about UFOs. I read everything I could get my hands on and I realized this field is a mess. This topic is an absolute disaster because there's so many hucksters and and uh, fraudsters and people making stuff up and you can't tell who's a ufologist from a pseudo ufologist and who's real and who isn't. There's a lot of nonsense in there. Give me six months and I'll have this figured out. Well, you know, it's 33 years later and I haven't figured it out yet, but I've at least figured out some of it. So from that day on, you know, I dug into UFOs and have never stopped. And we produced a, a nine part series in November uh, of that year and 1989. And it was the biggest, highest rated series that's ever been produced for local news in Las Vegas. It pirated copies went all over the world. I did a follow-up series six months later, had an even bigger reaction. 
um, or at least an equal reaction. And it was off the races from there. And luckily at that time, just my luck, MUFON had its international symposium in Las Vegas that year. So right after I started working on Lazar and the what became UFOs, the best evidence, the UFO world came to my door. Uh, there I got to meet Stan Friedman and interview him, Walt Andrus, the head of MUFON. I got to meet Linda Howell and, uh, and uh, subsequently met uh, uh, Bud Hopkins, Whitley Strieber, John Mack, all the luminaries, the really credible, hardworking people who knew this topic, and they shared so much with me over that. And there was no turning back after that that I'm the UFO guy. Right. You continued as a, as a journalist breaking mob stories. I mean, UFOs might not have killed you yet, but mobsters sure have tried to. I mean, there, there was a lot that you went through all these years being a journalist, taking heat from people about the, about the fact you're treating the UFO thing with journalistic integrity. That wasn't so cool 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago like it is today. It's okay to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't cool at all, in fact. And you know, it was cool with the public. The thing is, the public couldn't get enough of it. And no matter where I went, to this day, uh, the public, if I'm in a grocery store, I'm in a bar, I'm in a restaurant, people come up and engage with me. They want to, they ask me, do you really believe that stuff? And what they really want to know is uh, they want to tell me their UFO story. And it seems like everyone's got one. Yeah, yeah. And so the public couldn't get enough. The, the pushback came from my journalistic brethren. They hated it. I got nothing but crap uh, about it. Uh, the newspapers in town ran editorial cartoons, the columnists made fun of the U people with UFO beanies and look over there, there's E.T. and Elvis and, and all kinds of columns that whacked me on a regular basis. The morning uh, radio DJs would, when they'd run out of belch, barf and fart jokes would take off on me. They wrote songs about it. I started getting letters from all over the world, wacky, crazy letters from UFO people who told me they'd been abducted um, about sexual things that aliens had done to them. I mean, a lot of it was really crazy, but I tried to to always treat it like a news story. And I could never understand the, uh, the animosity from my fellow journalists because the people who were bashing me on a regular basis back then had never done any of the work. Mm -hmm. It was easier to sit there and type up some wisecracks, the same UFO jokes that have been told a million times since then uh, and before then. Um, it was easier to do that than to do the work, to go sit out in at Area 51 in the desert night after night, as I did hundreds of times, to try to see whatever was flying around in the sky, to dig into Lazar's background, to investigate the background of other people who had worked in the military, who had some recognition of UFOs and knowledge of, of secret programs. And that was hard stuff. That was real journalism. And that's, that's how I always tried to approach it, as a real legitimate story. Once you separate the wheat from the chaff and, and get down to the bottom of it, 95% of everything you hear in the field is probably explainable. But that other 5% is really interesting. And it could be, as we said at that first meeting with Lazar, could be the biggest story in history. So, I mean, on this podcast, on this show, you know, let's say a limited series, 12 months, if we go all the way through, we're going to be talking about a lot of the stories that you have brought to public attention. You know, we're not, we don't have to go into all them, the depths of them right now, but I just want to highlight as a journalist, I mean, you also are the only journalist that went over to Russia during Glasnost and Perestroika, saw that opportunity and got original files, the classified files that, that you stripped of the classification and brought with you back to the US talking about Russia's UFO program. So that's one of the things we'll go into on this. But you also, 
had your hands in at Skinwalker Ranch, which is this now real famous place, a paranormal hotspot, a place where there's UFO sightings and more. So those are some of the things in your career. You've written a couple books on the on the Skinwalker yeah, Ranch. I've written two books, yeah. Hunt for the Skinwalker and Skinwalkers of the Pentagon. Um, you know, written newspaper columns and produced uh, pro programs and specials uh, that were independent of KLAS as well and work with you, of course. But, you know, along the way, as with any good news story, the most important thing you can do is establish trust with sources. And um, and it's not a trick. It's that the trick in being trustworthy is to actually be trustworthy. So among the first people that I engaged when I first started down this road became people who are titans in this field and who are influencing events that are unfolding right now. One was Senator Harry Reid. Reid had just been elected to the U.S. Senate, the first of five terms in 1988. 1989, as I'm working on this Lazar Area 51 stuff, he had worked with the military and helped secure DOD budgets and things of that sort. I thought, you know what, who's going to want to know this is Harry Reid. So as I'm digging into it and getting more information, he's the first person I told outside of our newsroom. And it was in a lim limousine heading to McCarran Airport. He was flying back to Washington. And we had about a 25, 30 minute conversation. And instead of kicking me out and saying I'm crazy, he said, that's really interesting. Keep me in a loop about this wow. and, and I'll yeah. help you. And he did. Over the next 30 years, we had a secret conversation behind the scenes. I wasn't going to report it. I didn't want to get, get him in any kind of political hot water or make him look crazy. But we he helped me and I helped him. I helped introduce him to a lot of people and... Uh, I would send him information and documents, and and he took a long time interest in it, and and uh, he ended up going to Area 51 a number of times. Among the other people I met at the same time was Robert Bigelow. Bigelow is a name that I did not know at the time, but he called me up the day the series on the air ended. I get a call, hold for Robert Bigelow. Didn't know his name. He's a billionaire. He had the budget suites. Um, he he had been a highly successful real estate developer. And he gets on the phone and says, hey, boy, that, that series is pretty good. Can I help you? I said, well, you know, I appreciate your comment. Well, what do you mean you help me? Well, financially support, you're going to do some additional research. I said, well, no, I work for Channel 8. I can't do that, but, you know, I'll keep you in mind. And he wanted to meet Lazar. I said, well, I'll, I'll ask Lazar, but he was pretty, he was pretty uh, reticent to, to meet the public or engage with the public. Yeah, he he still, was scared. Still, still is. He's yeah, still he thought he was yeah. going to be killed. He thought he was going to be killed at the time. So I said, you know, I'll, I'll ask Lazar and I'll get back to you. I, and then within two weeks, uh, Robert Bigelow, not one to be denied, had hired private investigators, tracked down Lazar, met him, uh, and, and they were going to meet for drinks and invited me to join him. And then that started a little social circle of me and Bob and Gene Huff and Robert Lazar, uh, Bigelow who would meet and talk about UFOs. And we took a trip up to Rachel and Area 51 and had some hijinks out there. And I got to know Bigelow really well. That relationship also became key to not only my career, but also to the topic in general. And we'll get into how that works. Yeah, we're going to definitely get into that. I mean, I my theory is that a lot of these people that made a lot of headway in this field, for example, uh, Senator Harry Reid, He's the one who created the funding for the largest acknowledged UFO program by our government ever. But from my understanding is he wasn't into this thing until you came at him about Bob Lazar. So there's, we'll talk about that more later. But for people that don't 
or just kind of hearing about who you are, that is your career in a nutshell, is that you know, you're a hard-edged investigative reporter, you broke stories that every kind of thing people can imagine, but the UFO thing has really stuck with you, it's branded you along the way. And it changed. So in those days, you know, the dominant paradigm was UFOs are ET craft coming here from other planets. They're visiting Earth from some other planet. That's what, that's the operating presumption that I had and what most of the UFO luminaries at the time thought. Uh, there was a guy named Dr. Jacques Vallée that I got to meet uh, uh, later uh, in that second UFO project, who had maybe the most important writer on this topic, a key thinker, has written uh, essential books about the subject matter, who is the, among the first to suggest UFOs may not be extraterrestrial. It might be something far more exotic. In fact, our first meeting, he said, I'm going to be really disappointed if it turns out the answer to this UFO mystery is that these are craft from other planets. Because he said, if as the witnesses have indicated and the evidence shows, these craft can manipulate space-time, create their own gravity. As Lazar has said, right. they could be from anywhere. They could be from ET, uh, interdimensional, uh, outer space, uh, time travelers, all the above. Uh, so he got me thinking that maybe there's a lot more to it than just aliens visiting the planet. And then Bigelow drives that point home. He creates an organization called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. He had spent more money on UFO research than any person in the history of the world. And he offered a million bucks up to the three major UFO organizations if they could just get along. You need money. You're always complaining about not enough money to do research or investigations. Here's a million bucks. All you got to do is get along. Of course, they couldn't. And so he pulled it back off the table, created his own UFO organization based in Las Vegas called NIDS. I'm the only journalist that's allowed to know about it. He had me speak at the first meeting of this NIDS Science Advisory Board, this amazing panel of people. Jacques Vallée is there, along with Dr. Hal Putoff, a CIA scientist who helped develop remote viewing. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, uh, uh, six among, man to walk, sixth on, man the to walk on the yeah. moon, and a PhD uh, astrophysicist, and a, a great brilliant guy. guy. Yeah. Uh, John Alexander came later, Dr. Callum Kelleher came later, uh, just a table full of people. There was another U.S. Senator who was at the table, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, who was on this board, who had been the last person to walk on the moon. And I delivered a presentation to them at their first meeting uh, about the Russian files that you mentioned. Okay. And uh, I was just blown away by it. I get out of that meeting, and about a week later, I called Senator Reid. I said, hey, there's this new organization on this topic that you and I talk about uh, under the table uh, now and then, and I think you'd really be interested. He says, do you think I could get invited? Well, that was my point of calling him. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll set it in motion. And he did, he got a meeting, uh, it came to a NIDS meeting uh, later in that year. And then from there on, he was hooked. Uh, you know, he saw the caliber of people who were around that table and he was hooked. Yeah. And, and to fast forward from that, so we'll, we'll go into that in other episodes, I'm sure. But, you know, NIDS became other things that ended up being this huge yeah. DIA government UFO program. So on this podcast, it's fair to say we're going to talk a lot about UFOs. Yeah, I'll just say about Skinwalker. So that same year, NIDS, Bigelow buys Skinwalker Ranch. And the ideas that Jacques Vallée had planted with me that it may not be extraterrestrial, mm -hmm. that that was that bore fruit there at the ranch because the the smorgasbord of strange stuff that was going on there certainly doesn't sound like what we think we know about ETs. This was something else, and we'll get into that. Yeah, I mean, the more that you look into this topic, even for myself, the more unsure you are of the conclusions that you that you really started with. I mean, we all start with some idea of what we think it is, yeah. and the the UFO mystery. It it really, I mean, that's 
it, for me, it was it was this moment, this one moment that that made me realize, you know, I can't be a passive consumer of this. I have to be an active participant, you know, because it's so fascinating. Well, you and I have talked about it a lot of times over the last decade or so. You know, they they as I started out, the the big questions: Who are they? Mm -hmm. Where are they from? Why are they here? What's their interest in us? And we don't have answers to any of that. We know a lot more stuff, but we really don't know. And the more I learn, the fuzzier those answers get because, you know, uh, some of this activity, it doesn't fit into a category. And you, your own journey sort of started at the same place. We have the same gateway drug. That's right. That's right. My gateway drug into UFOs was John Lear. I mean, well, you know, really, I got to say my, my gateway drug into UFOs was you and Bob Lazar first coming forward to the public in the news reports and Bob saying what he did about the propulsion systems of this UFO craft that he said he worked on. So we do have this this central point. It was getting to you though that I think is hilarious. People should see, hear about that. But what happened to me was I heard you and Bob on the radio and I heard Bob describing the way that the craft would move through space and time. And he described it as falling into place. Like he would always say, if you put a bowling ball on the bed and you stick your fist down and push down on the bed, the bowling ball falls into place. He's like, that's the way the craft moved. It's not reactionary propulsion. It's reaction-less propulsion. It's not pushing something out the back to move forward from rockets to roller skates. That's the way things move as far as we know. But hearing him as a 13-year-old kid, and you're interviewing him, hearing him talk about gravitational propulsion and falling into space, it dawned on me, even at that young age when I was interested in, in other things, this interests me because I could understand that if Bob Lazar was telling the truth, and if he was right about the propulsion, right, then distance no longer matters. It was this idea the universe is vast, there's probably intelligent life, teeming through the universe, but they ain't coming here. There's no way. And, and the moment I heard Bob describe that, I realized distance would be irrelevant if the physics of what he's saying is correct. It wouldn't matter how far another civilization was. If they could build these machines, they could get here very easily. It's one thing a, a buddy of mine, a smart buddy of mine once said to me, um, which is that he goes, Jeremy, you're thinking about it wrong. He goes, it's probably really easy to get here. And, you know, because I was like, why so much? Why so much activity of UFOs? How, it's not just one person. It's over time, so much contact, sightings, radar. It's got to be fucking easy to get here. So, so that, was, that was a really interesting way to look at it. So that was my inception point. I was 13, though. I had a whole life and whole career that I was starting in, in martial athletics. And art. And art. I ended up doing art, uh, you know, because I got real ill and couldn't compete or train or anything like that. So yes, yeah, so I did art as well. And then, you know, really I got this idea. I got, well, actually I got a camera for my wedding and I, it was really funny. I pointed it, the second I'd pointed at somebody, they'd start spilling beans to me. You know, it's like, he would just talk and tell me stuff they probably shouldn't on camera. And I was like, well, this thing is magical. You know, <laughs> this thing, if I just pointed at somebody, it's magical. And I'm like, who can I point it at? I want to learn more about UFOs. So you were completely inaccessible. Of course, Bob was completely, completely inaccessible. And I thought, well, who knows anything about this? And I thought that would be John Lear. So, you know, finally I got through to John, which was also hard at the time because he was a little sick. So everybody was like ghosting me in the UFO world. And there was no like Twitter or anything that I could jump in and try to ask people questions. So finally Lear said, okay, you know, 
he'd come talk to me. And I think he just wanted me to smuggle him cigars and Fritos or something, you know, because he didn't give me the time of day. We, we sit there and for like two days, he's staring at me through the barrel of a cigar, not answering a single question. And I'm filming him just sitting at his computer. He was kind of testing me, I know, because I ended up filming with him for years after. But the first question I ever asked about UFOs was, okay, what is your best piece of evidence that UFOs are real? Show it to me. Get you show it to me. put it in my hands. And you know, my gosh, how naive I was that it's that easy. But so that's where I started filming. But really, with journalism, it was me trying to get to you. And I, I think you probably know this story on your side, but you might not know it on my side. But uh, <laughs> man, I tried to, you know, I tried to contact you for, it was, I think it was two years. It was some ridiculous time. If you look through your emails, you might find every six months, I was respectfully trying to reach out to you, called the station a couple of times. Finally, somebody from your station called me back and I, had my, I was doing art. So I had paint all over my hands. I'm actually resining something at the time. And I just get the phone in my ear and goes, hold for George Knapp. That's all they said. And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, you know, hold on. And I'm like, uh, and he goes, can I give you a piece of advice? And I said, sure. He goes, know what you want to say, say it clearly. He doesn't have much time. Hold for George Knapp. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So the second you get on the phone, I just start going, hi, my name is Jeremy Corbell. I'm really into this, but I'm not a crazy person. I really want to know the truth. And I've got a few things that I've been doing. I've been filming with John Lear for about <laughs> nine months. And I really want to know if you can give me any information. I'm really interested in this. And I want to know the truth. And I don't want any BS. And you seem like the guy. Just talked as fast as I could. And then it was like, I think you were eating a sandwich because it was like the longest pause. I thought you had hung up on me. And then you're like, okay, I'll do my part. I remember you said that. And then bam, probably the longest conversation we had on the phone, it was one way. You just told me shit. And I was like, man, that's so cool that you gave me that time that you really did your part. So that just made my disease worse. I was like, oh man, I'm coming to stay with you. And you're like, okay. So that was how we, from my perspective, you know, finally connected on, on the UFO topic. I think you saw I was serious about it. I was starting to film, you know, some, I didn't even know I'd be a filmmaker, but I started to film because it was my passport into people's lives was just holding this camera at them. Nothing's changed, you know? <laughs> well, uh, Ian Russell is the guy you talk to. He's oh, a well, producer for the I-Team. He uh, was one of many shields that I had yeah. at the station. And after a while, you know, I was, I was all gung-ho in the beginning on the UFO topic. I wanted to hear from everybody, yeah. but it becomes oppressive after a yes. while. You understand. Yes, it. I do. I mean, to this day, I get, I stopped taking phone calls. I stopped yeah. answering the phone because they'd get on the phone and people would, would have a two hour story about their UFO experience and yeah. you couldn't get anything done. So I reluctantly had to cut that off. And I have all kinds of people at the station who would run interference for me, yeah. which I, I regret, but there's no other way to get anything else yeah, done. Yeah, you can't survive. I mean, so, so since then, just so for people that don't know uh, my work and what I've done. So what I've, what I've been attempting to do is, is get, gather as much information and get it out in a credible way. And, and films have been a cool way to do that, documentaries. So my first documentary was called Patient 17. I follow a guy named Dr. Roger Lear. He believed he was um, taking out what he called alien implants for people. It was really far out there. I didn't even want to do the film. But the, the guy, Patient 17, I found him very credible. So that was one of the reasons I made that first movie. And then obviously Hunt for the Skinwalker, which is based upon your initial research and book and filming out there. It was the first time anybody ever saw The Ranch. So that was a movie that came out on Hulu. So Patient 17 came out on Netflix. Huge success for an unknown filmmaker who doesn't, didn't even go to film school and doesn't really know how to use Aperture. Whatever. Then I made Hunt for the Skinwalker. And then finally, I made the movie Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers, which has also came out on Netflix. 
at, so as an unknown filmmaker, I've been very lucky to get you know people to interview with me, but then just to get these films out and seen. Like you know, I feel like Inspector Crusoe of filmmaking. Describe for uh, our listeners how it was getting Bob to cooperate <laughs> and to eventually go on camera. Yeah, man. I, people don't get this. I mean, so it it it's like capturing the Yeti or the Sasquatch. You have to be really lucky and patient, and it might not even exist. You know. Um, Obviously, knowing John Lear and then getting to know you, it's like there was this idea that at some point I could just talk with Bob. I didn't even want to necessarily film. I just want to talk with him. But there was no, this radio silence. Notoriously, he doesn't want, he doesn't feel a need to justify to the public what he's told them. He, he told the public what he did about UFOs and back engineering craft because he was scared for his life. And you know that better than anybody to be true because you were there during it. But Getting Bob to go on camera took many, many years. I also didn't want to be pushy. And you know, I wasn't a real filmmaker, really, even then, even with anybody I was filming. So so the thing with Bob, I lucked out one day. He came over to John Lear's house the first time I ever got him on camera. And respectfully, I put all the cameras away. And it's really nice to meet you. Hey man, I really want to know. Are you telling the truth? You know, that's basically, are you fucking lying? You know? And then you could just see this kind of look in his eye. And I said, Bob, look, I'm, I was 13 years old when you came out. Three more minutes of you talking. The world hasn't had like extra footage of you. You did some news reports, but he would barely give his time. I'm like, just give me three minutes, man. He said, okay. And so I filmed this, like, it would actually end up being more than three minutes. It was the first time that he's really like defended his position. I was like, damn, that was cool. Even Lear said, I never heard him talk like that. But that's not a movie, and that's not a real interview, and I'm a nobody with this stuff. So then you and I were talking all this time. Over time, one day Bob just calls me up. He goes, okay, come over. And he's in Michigan. I'm like, what do you mean come over? He's like, yeah, let, let, let's do it. Come on over. And I'm thinking, I still can't believe it. So I go with all of my bags of cameras, but I don't like let him see them. I'm just like, hey, man, so why am I here? He goes, why do you think you're here? <laughs> I'm like, are you going to let me tell your story? He goes, under one condition. I said, what's that? And he's like, don't fucking lie. You know, just don't, don't corrupt, just word for word, what I say is fine. And I thought, wow, okay, here's my only one condition. You give me access to everybody and anybody. If I see a box and it's closed and I want it open, you're going to let me open it. And he goes, yeah, fine. He didn't care. Let me look through all your videotapes. Yeah, cool. Audio tapes, no problem. So that's, that's once it, once he opened up, then it was like, okay, the world needs to hear this story again. They can make their own decision, whether it's true or not true. That's not, was not the point of my documentary. It was not a breakdown of every argument for and against Bob Lazar. The idea of the documentary was to show people who Bob was so they could not dehumanize and dismiss him based upon these outrageous things they've said, just get to know he's a guy. And then you start thinking about his story. Maybe another documentary we do, we go into the nitty gritty of pros and cons for is Bob telling us the truth? The point that Bob is telling us the truth. I believe Bob's telling us the truth. And I actually have more information than the general public. And so do you. So yeah, but, if I but, didn't think he was being truthful, I wouldn't still be on it. And I'd say right. so, you know, I would report it. You would. We, we went down that road when I was first looking into his background and we ran into some speed bumps. I mean, some pretty big problems. The schools he said he went to uh, claimed they'd never heard of him. I thought, well, this project could end before it really gets going. Right. And then, you know, if followed the lead uh, a couple of different places to Los Alamos. His claim that he had worked at Los Alamos, if he had worked there and classified projects in a scientific or technical position, 
that it really didn't matter to me whether he had gone to the schools he claimed or not, because it was plausible that he could get hired to work out in the Nevada desert and work on this. And, and I still believe that to be true. Uh, there, there are so many detractors, so many people who are deep into the UFO subject who believe we have crashed saucers and we're doing reverse engineering and we might even be doing it out at the places where he said we're doing it, still find reasons to not believe Bob. He's a liar. He's a, you know, he's a profiteer. He's just doing this for attention. He is the most reluctant UFO messiah I know. And getting yeah. him to go on camera that first time was, was a miracle. Getting him to go on camera after that was like pulling teeth. Right. And I, you and I were talking on the way on the drive over here today is that on the day that we revealed his identity to the world and told them that he's Bob Lazar, not this guy, Dennis, he was in the station and I was, we were editing right up in the last minute. And I had that videotape to take it to the control room to get it ready to go on the air. And he grabbed it from me and we got into a little tussle. He had decided he changed his mind. I don't want to do this. And he's been that way ever since, you know, he's, uh, he knew he was going to take a lot of grief. He's taken an unimaginable amount of grief from, especially from the UFO world, but he stuck to his story. So big picture, this is representative of that. You know, obviously we're going to have some great guests throughout this yeah. podcast and show. It's going to be cool. The, people will speak for themselves as well. But big picture, what you're describing there is kind of a syndrome of what we see about the UFO topic in general, which, which now there's been a sea change. And we're, we are in the mass media. Congress and Senate is creating whistleblower laws so that people can come testify. But the big picture is that Human beings, we all have this innate fear. Nobody has no opinion about UFOs. Everybody has a strong opinion to begin with. They're either real or they're not real. And, and I kind of feel that's that's fair. UFOs are real or they're not real. There's either craft of unknown origin that are flying with impunity within our restricted airspace globally for decades or longer, or they're not. It's, it's, it's that simple. But the point is, human beings, we all have a very strong opinion and bias when it comes to this. Now, the more we learn, we can start saying, okay, I'm starting to, to feel that this is a real phenomenon. I, I don't feel that every opinion is created equal. I think that if you've lived a certain life and you've done a certain amount of work to understand something, you know, if you put calculus in front of me, I'm not going to be able to jam it out like somebody who studied it their whole life. So the idea is we all bring bias towards this thing, especially UFOs. However, I think there is something to be learned, right? Well, you know, going at this, as I said, what hooked me is the paper trail. There is a trail of documents that shows our military has studied this, that they have evidence in their possession, maybe even craft uh, and maybe even bodies from crash sites. Uh, so I, I really wanted to pursue that. And, and to, in order to pursue it, you know that there are people inside government who know more than anyone else. Right. And this, the reason is simple. This is that Dr. Bellet had said, you know, if you're looking at who has the evidence, it's the government, it's the military, because they have the capability to collect it. They have the sensor systems and satellites and right. you know, and, and personnel all over the world. They have the evidence. If, if you if want high resolution photos, yeah. if you crash retrievals, this is gonna be operated by a government. So if this stuff indeed exists, bodies, it's not gonna be in someone's home. So how do you crack that part of the mystery? And, that, and that's, as a journalist, I approach that by trying to establish trust with people that I thought knew. The relationships that I developed through Robert Bigelow, through those NIDS people who had been in government, who had worked for CIA and DIA and other organizations who had had information from the inside, just didn't have a way to get it out, develop relationships with them, establish trust, and then work from there. And the seeds that were planted back then, 
by establishing relationships with those folks and with Harry Reid is directly responsible for what's unfolding right now. I mean, right, and th- and there's a lot unfolding right now, and this is kind of what I want to make sure we go through some stuff. Um, so. What is unfolding right now has been really unfolding since December of 2017 with the New York Times article. So to bring everybody up to date, if you've never been into this topic, but just on a real basic level, there was an article that came out in the New York Times, and it was an admission of the the longest, most, uh, the biggest UFO study of all time by our government that is acknowledged. And so this is a story that you knew about a long time before, but it really broke the UFO story for the world. It changed the attitudes of people, right? Yeah. The New York Times doing the story is a signal to other mainstream media that this is not disgraceful. It's not nonsense. If the paper of record does it, it's acceptable for you to do it too. And it's exactly the effect that it had because every news organization of the world started reporting on UFOs after the Times did the story. The, the report in December of 2017 was explosive. You and I knew it was coming and had done some things in advance. It's in, even in your film, Hunter yeah. Skinwalker. Hey, in a couple of weeks, something big That's is coming. Right. Um, but the New York Times story, as important as it was, got it wrong. They had reported about the existence of a program called ATIP. And the guy who was in charge of it was Lou Elizondo, who had worked as an insider. He had... had uh, and came forward. He was upset that uh, secrecy existed. The Times said that the ATIP had a budget of $22 million that had been arranged by Senator Harry Reid, that the money went to Robert Bigelow, and they were studying UFOs. Well, a a lot of that was right, and it was a crucial and important story, but a lot of it was wrong. The actual program was called something else. And in the months that followed, um, I started digging into that. I I was invited to go to a a meeting in in Washington, D.C. with Senator Harry Reid, and an intelligence guy that I can say the name of it now, his name is Jim Lekatsky. He had worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency, had spent 20 years as a rocket scientist, analyzing enemy systems and and doing reverse engineering, things of that sort. Uh, And he took an interest in Skinwalker Ranch and the possibility that there were national defense considerations based on our book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. He read the book, he shared it with other intelligence officials, they thought it was interesting as well. So he asked his superiors for permission to go visit the ranch. He reached out to Robert Bigelow, went to the property, had a dramatic experience, went back to Washington, wrote up a proposal for a program, sold it to Harry Reid, who pitched it to fellow sen- senators. They secured $22 million. The program is called OSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. It does not mention UFOs in any of the documents. It was put out as a contract. Robert Bigelow created an organization called BASS. Apologies for all these acronyms, by the way. Mm -hmm. OSAP is the program under DIA. BASS is the organization that got the contract, and they started a study. It was a secret study. Um, It was supposed to last for five years. Skinwalker Ranch was used as a sort of a base of operations, but it wasn't the focus of the study. And they proceeded to hire 50 full-time investigators. Biggest UFO program in the history of our government that we know of. Right. Uh, and there are others that we might know of. Yeah. There are others, and, and hopefully that'll come out. So I am sure that on this show, we're going to have people come on. We're also going to poke the bear on the show. I mean, we're, we're going to be able to release stuff that we've debated about how to release. If we obtain information, photos, videos, how do we release it? So, But I want to talk about how that started for us and how we work together on this. 
So we really poked the bear because what happened was, you know, UFOs, all of a sudden it's all over the media. We catch wind that there is going to be an official UFO report coming out. And we're thinking, huh, what are they going to put in there? Are they going to whitewash this? Are they going to play it down? So you and I had been sitting on uh, certain imagery for, for years in some cases, and we thought, all right, let's put it together. Corroborative visual evidence uh, of East Coast and West Coast encounters. Everybody had kind of heard about the Tic Tac UFO case by that point uh, with Commander David Fravor. And I was absolutely the first person to be interviewing him about all that for years. He's talked about that. And I didn't blow his cover, but the New York Times article did blow his cover. I mean, at that point, um, there was a whole thing about him. So Basically, we decided, and tell me if you agree with how this works, but we we decided, hey, if we have any chance ever to push the envelope, it's going to be now. What can we responsibly put out to poke the bear and try to get a response, an official response from our government on cases we knew were legitimate? The 2019 swarm events off of the West Coast of California involving 10 ships over 100 UFOs simultaneously over three days. And then on the East Coast, you have photographs from FA-18 pilots shooting out the window on their iPhone. Let me let me back up for a second. 2004, Tic Tac, maybe the most important UFO case of all time, given its importance. It was central to the New York Times story, which yeah. changed everything. We reported it before the New York Times. We did. Yeah. Uh, and, and in part, that was because of the relationship you developed with Dave Fravor. I had shared with you some information that had come my way mm-hmm. through the OSAP program about this. The first study of the Tic Tac incident was done by OSAP for Bass, yeah. a document I released in 2018 uh, after you had broken the story about uh, Dave Fravor. We had broken it together. Yeah. Uh, but because of how you handled Dave Fravor and you were trustworthy and you kept your word and handled it in a responsible way, that word gets around among yeah. his fellow uh, naval aviators, which paid off dividends in big ways and is still doing that now. Absolutely. And yeah, now it's just an onslaught you know, of, of information that comes our way, which I appreciate greatly, but credible information imagery, videos, photos, that kind of thing. So so just to kind of get to the core of it, there's this sea change, how, how UFOs are covered. We decide we're going to put out responsibly, we're going to put out this information, which is inherently non, it is inherently not classified, yet it was contained in classified briefings. But what we received was the non-classified aspects of it. So uh, four videos, radar, thermal, IR, and deck footage, normal camera footage, all supporting one event series that was happening in 2019. Two slides, official government slides, one talking about uh, transmedium craft, the other talking about pyramids, triangular in shape. So we're reporting the news. We give all this information out. Hey, we this is what we see going on. And then also with that is your images you obtained from the, from the fighter pilots off the West Coast. So we're trying to show East West Coast, this is happening. And you told people at that time, this is happening on a daily basis. Yeah. I don't I'm think anybody sure. believed it. But in, yeah. in, after the New York Times story, December 2017, there's an explosion of interest in UFOs. We start getting inv- invitations to speak at these conferences. Yeah. And I'm gathering information from people, sources I had developed over a number of years. And at those conferences, Laughlin, maybe a couple of other ones, I make the statement that look, there's a giant naval base on the East Coast and pilots, naval pilots are seeing UFOs every day. Right. And that was going on in 2014, 2015, and, and continued. And I don't think anybody believed me. But we subsequently learned 
that it was going on, that the, you know, the Navy was trying to get its pilots to take photos, these aviators are reluctant to do that. They don't want it to interfere with their career or get them grounded. That'd be the last thing they want to have happen. Uh, but in the course of, uh, there's an area called Oceana, that's the base, the big naval air station on the East Coast. There's an area called W-72 uh, over the ocean. Flyers, aviators would fly out of this base and go out into the ocean every day. And every day they're seeing these things. They finally get some pilots to take pictures. And in uh, February of 2019, one sortie took pictures of three different objects. Those photos came my way a couple months later. There was a sort of a UFO summit in Las Vegas. Harry Reid was there, Robert Bigelow, I won't say everybody else, but I was there yeah. and saw these photos and I sat on them because I, I didn't have permission to release them. But after you start getting a lot of images, I thought, well, what the heck? Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. And we, and we did kind of talk with everybody and make sure. Now, I'm not going to reveal specifically how or where I received stuff, you know, or anything like that. But, you know, obviously the information we have is correct and it is credible and it is military film footage. And the, how quickly the United States government confirmed, yes, these are military videos. And yes, they are of unknowns. Now, we'll talk about how that's changed or not changed at another date. But I think it's important to understand that when I get information that comes to me, I know I can go to you and you have your own sources that can then help me vet information. So it works both ways. And it's really cool that we can uh, do that to find out if the content or information we're being given is credible, reliable, and if, if it's something we can legally put out. We should point out that you mentioned about a classified briefing. So there was the ATIP program that Lou Elizondo headed. That was the report in the New York Times. There was the OSAP program that I revealed the existence of that was headed by Jim Lekatsky at the DIA. They studied Tic Tac and many other UFO cases. Uh, and then after those programs went away, uh, something else came in. Uh, there, it didn't even have a name for a long time. And then it became the UAP task force. And the guy who was in charge of it, I'll say his name now, we can say it, Jay Stratton, had worked with both ATIP and OSAP, and he was carrying on the investigation on a very uh, quiet basis, trying to put things together, collecting data and information and images from all kinds of different agencies. He put it together in this massive briefing document, and he would make presentations to the Joint Chiefs, to the CIA, to the DIA, and eventually to defense contractors. And because the, the actual document itself was classified, but the images that we've now made public were not classified. It's hard to explain that, hard for people to understand that it could be true, but it was true. Well, anything without a specific demarcation, as a journalist, we can accept if, if it's not has a clear you know, markation of it being classified or secret or sensitive. So you and I steer well away from that, but that's one way you can know that you're okay. Yeah. So yeah. I, I released the images from the East Coast. They're photos and they're, they don't show the Starship Enterprise or something, but they're really interesting. And they were to that, to this day, we're still considered unidentified. You uh, collect some in, images that were in that classified briefing, not classified videos, uh, let's start with talk about the USS Omaha. That's an example. So July 2019, what's going on on the West Coast? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a huge topic. We're going to dedicate at least a couple episodes to this. But the, the big picture is that there were swarm events of UFOs. And in 2019, one that came to my attention and that I've done more digging on this than, than anybody, I, I, even more than our own 
intelligence agencies. Every witness that I speak with said they haven't talked to any of them, or if they did, way less than they've talked to me. So now, at this point, there's so many people involved on these 10 ships, at least 10 ships, that are swarmed simultaneously on the East Coast in 2019 over the course of three days. And, and we're going to get in, way into this. You know, What are the shapes of these things? How did they look? What did the Spy One radar people think? What did the people fighting the ships do? This is one epic, modern-day UFO swarm encounter on our own military that is not something we can brush under the table or explain easily as some press has started to try to do. So, so that's what that case was, is the 2019 uh, West Coast. But again, there are big cases throughout history. We have the Tic Tac UFO event. We have everything that's going on in the East Coast, like uh, Lieutenant Ryan Graves talking about how they would see these UFOs on a daily basis. I want to go back to the Omaha because I think okay. you're giving it short shrift. So, yeah. you know, all right, 10 ships, yes, 10 warships of the U.S. Navy, yes, 100 miles off the West Coast yes. out there in the oceans uh, west of San Diego are all swarmed over a couple of days by hundreds of objects. Some people have tried to say, that, oh, they're just drones. You know, just drones flying out of nowhere. You don't see them land. You don't see them where they took off, where they came from. Right. They're over our ships, buzzing around performing some pretty amazing uh, maneuvers. And some of those images are recorded, in particular yes. by the crew of the USS Omaha. Right. So I was, I was able to obtain numerous videos. And to be clear, that we're not in those uh, classified briefings. I think we, we kind of mistalked. Let's get real clear on that. Right. A lot of what I obtained and released was not in the report by Jay Stratton for the UAP task force. In fact, our Pentagon didn't have this military footage until you and I gave it to them. Right. And so I think that's really important that, right. that they saw there was a break in the chain of command here. You and I should be obsolete in this. Why should military people feel like they need to give us information that didn't we give? Because we're already putting it out. We say, hey, we're putting this out. So that's why they had to confirm and then address this footage in Congress and Senate during the hearings, some of it. Um, is because we provided it to them. We shouldn't have to do that. So I hope that's that's a, clarifies to people. But to your point, I'd say you said 100 miles. Within a radius of 100 miles, there were 10 ships. So this was the circle or the diameter of at least 100 UFOs simultaneously swarming all of these 10 Navy warships. Now, its proximity to land is different for each ship because they're in that radius. And there are some big deals about that. For example... I think we should give people today two things they haven't had before. So one is, is that when the USS Omaha was swarmed, so was the USS Russell, the Paul Hamilton, a bunch of ships. Well, I've been speaking with individuals from each ship in different levels of responsibility. I think we should play for people one of the direct testimony of an eyewitness. That's the thing that's been missing. Is, is people that were actually there. Yeah, I should, I should point out, you've got a lot of eyewitnesses that you've spoken to, recorded, yeah. who willingly come forward yeah. and shared information. And to set up this, this audio clip we're about to hear is, those who would like us to dismiss this and say, it's just drones, like you, know, you can go buy them at Kmart or something, or it's something you can buy off the internet. Uh, 
again, you're a hundred miles out to sea for some of these ships. Mm -hmm. There are no other land. There's no other land out there from which you could launch a drone. There are no other ships, except for one that we'll talk about. Yeah. And where do these uh, drones come from? It's important that. You yeah. So so what's so there's going to be a lot more from this witness and other witnesses from Paul Hamilton that have allowed me to record with them, and we're going to have some people in person. But the the main thing is all these people are still active duty, and and this is not their goal is to become the UFO person. So I'm not going to just broadcast their names necessarily, but I got the audio recordings. So with this particular clip out of like a number that I'll, that we'll be releasing at some point, they talk about the, these objects, these UFOs. At, at one point he said to me, these are UFOs, they're unidentified, but we have to call them something. We call them UAS, you know, unmanned aerial systems because they just weren't big enough to hold a human being. We're coming from the West, and so that's kind of the point of this audio. Let's listen to it, and then we can talk about it. But it's just one of the details of why we shouldn't just dismiss this, first of all, just as drones, or second of all, just as like adversarial or even commercial drones. Where did they land? Where did they launch? So let's play the audio, and then we'll talk about it. And for purposes right here, I'm just going to play it on my phone out loud for us. 53 seconds. So from what direction was this swarm coming? It was actually coming from the west. It was coming from the west? Yeah, from the west. So over water? Over water, away from land. I mean, like, the only thing we have over there is like, Hawaii is probably the closest thing west of us. And when they were departing, what direction were they departing to? They would depart in different, on different bearings than they came in on. So normally always from the west and then departing in a different direction? Yeah, yeah. Um, not exclusively, but uh, yeah, pretty constantly, it'd be a different bearing, which is weird, right? Like, so if you deployed a drone to go check something out, it would come back. So that was like something significant enough for us to like report that, hey, these things are going a different direction than they came. So a very simple statement. There's so many parts we could pull from to, to have this conversation, but I thought that one was cool because he's like, they were coming from the West. So normally, if you had any kind of drone, they would have to return to its launch point. But he's seen them come in and durationally go in other directions. So whose were they? Where yeah. did they come from? So did, did somebody launch their Walmart drone from Hawaii and it traveled 1,800 miles to buzz these? There's hundreds of them that buzzed these 10 ships over three days. You've got a number of witnesses who saw them. Uh, yeah. and, the, and then back to the USS Omaha, the video that you released, Pretty famous. This is an orb. This is a eight or nine, ten feet uh, at a circle. No wings, no tail, no rotor, no visible propulsion system. And they track it on a thermal screen. It's not a TV camera. It's a thermal imaging system. They track it for I don't know an hour. They travel along with the yeah. Animal. Well, they track so so. The, yeah, this is it's you know approximately about ten feet in diameter is what the, their best assumption at this point. But uh, what what's important about it is it shows um, an object going into the water, and this was just what the, our government said they believe it to be transmedium. They sent helicopters up after this thing, and I actually do have witnesses that that actually saw them going into the water. So that's a whole nother thing. But here's the deal, man. All that footage. It's not just one piece of footage. It's the military filmed weapon systems that got, first of all, thermal, an object going into the water, but radar that showed about 14 contacts around this one ship at this one time. Then we have deck footage from the deck. What did it look like? 
and then also infrared footage off the USS Russell. So the corroborative visual evidence that this was going on. But then once you start talking with people, I mean, they're like astonished uh, of how these things could move, what they could do, um, how they seemed to be defenseless against this. And then there's been all this play of like, oh, these are just drones. Okay, maybe they're not commercial drones. They're definitely military drones. So it must be China or something like that. Well, we have a lot to say about that over the course of this these next episodes. I mean, it's like there's a lot of problems with trying to dismiss this very important event. Just to point out to our listeners, too. So you have the three different sets of images from the USS Omaha, the thermal screen showing mm -hmm. this giant orb travel along with the ship. Yep. Then the uh, shot of the radar screen showing up to 14 images yep. blinking in and out. And then the videos taken on the deck that shows the lights hovering over the ship. That's right. You sent those, we sent those yeah. to the Pentagon yeah. because we had them and they didn't. That's and right. suddenly they had them and people started, had to ask them, is this for real? And to our utter and total astonishment, the Pentagon said, yes. Yes, for the first time in their life, they're honest about UFOs. Yes, right? they are recorded by the Navy and yeah. yes, they're real. And yes, they are included in the UAP uh, study. So, so these are not just, like it's not like, yeah, that's real, but we know what they are. It's included in the U. So they also admitted that that it was included in the UFO UAP study, and and we now know to to a higher degree that they did study it, that they did go check on some of the ships after that OSI Office Special Investigations for the Navy. So there's a huge story in there that people are trying to just dismiss with ridiculous statements. Yeah, so among the most famous images from that July 2019 episode are these green pyramids yeah. that, that we released, that yeah. you you obtained and we released yes. together. And they went all over the world immediately. And yeah. every UFO story you see on every network now, they use some of that video. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the debunkers who don't want this to be true try to explain this as it's a trick. Uh, a bokeh, it's a, a trick from the lens, light that enters this lens from night vision, and it's not really pyramids, it's something else. Well, you know, the, the question is, are they unidentified craft flying over these ships? Because the USS Russell, they had a range finder that said one of them, at least, was 700 feet above the deck. So it's not a star, right? It's something really Yeah, yeah. Really no, there were, there were absolutely, um, remember, during this time period, at, at, with any given ship, there was, you know, 10, 14, up to 20 of these unidentifieds in close proximity to each other, swarming each Navy ship, usually in patterns with one above. Some even shot down like beams of light, which you know I have testimony for, we'll talk about later. But uh, these, this whole big debate of trying to say, oh, you know, the shape of it was not uh, you know, pyramid or triangle. Like on one level, I'm like, okay, no problem. I don't care if it was shaped like yeah. Mickey Mouse. We have no dog in this. Yeah, I, I really, I, people have put it on me because because I reported it, but like I don't have a dog in the fight. It, you know, if there's a lens artifact that makes it look that way, great, great. I don't care. However, the problem is is that every time you and I have pushed back on the people that have more censored data and more information who did this for the government, tell them, hey, you know, is the shape wrong in your original report? Because that's all we did. We put out a report says triangle by angle of observation, but in the classified briefings, they would say shaped in the form of pyramids. So and I, I actually physically saw that, okay? I'll admit that much. So the question is, is the report wrong? And you and I have asked over and over and over to the people that actually generated the report that have all the sensor systems, and they keep saying, it's it's the it's, it's correct, and it's unknown. I mean, the main point is yeah. it's an unknown craft. 
of unknown origin yeah, that, well, flying okay. over U.S. warships. That is the main Who point. Who cares what shape it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, is the main point. But I just want to address yeah, that, yeah. that all I did was report very directly what was in uh, originally a classified document, unclassified slides. I reported what's in the slide. I wasn't there. However, I became the go-to guy to, to crap on about it. You know, if, if, if I'm wrong about anything, oh, Jesus, you know. However, in this case, we're, I don't, it's undetermined because you and I keep going back to the original sources of these reports and they're sticking by their claims. They are, even today. So yeah, a little today. context for our listeners is the, the UAP task force is created and it is given an assignment by Congress. Look, we want to report on this. Yeah. What do you got on UFOs? And they, they had very limited resources and a limited time frame to put it together. But Jay Stratton and a friend of ours, Dr. Travis Taylor, known for television programs, who was a chief scientist for the UAP task force, they set about to put this together, this report for Congress. 144 cases from 2004 through 2020. 143 of those cases, they told Congress, have been unidentified. And among them was the USS Russell and the, uh, the USS well, And it's, it's so much more now. Yeah. See, that's the thing that it's, there's so much data coming in now that we've opened this Pandora's box of reporting. They were dealing with 144. Can you imagine how many cases they now have or our government has to deal with? But to, to the main point, I think it's important to say that the, the big issue is who is operating these vehicles? Wh where do they come from? What's their intent? Some UFO cases, a lot of them will be explained. I get them every day in my email and I'm like, Starlink, 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 Starlink. Oh, that's weird. A lot of them will be explained. I'm not interested in those. I'm interested yeah. in the ones that are unexplained right. and have incredible performance, like transmedium capability, the ability to go from space to air to sea without disturbance, without inertial effect. So in this 2019 Swarm event series, which we're going to talk a lot about, uh, there is absolutely no way I can dismiss this case as being prosaic yet. Well, yeah, <laughs> and neither can the original investigators. Right. Uh, so the UAP task force prepares this report. Congress has a hearing, first one in 50 years, a UFO hearing. These two guys show up from the Pentagon, Scott Bray, uh, the deputy director of Office of Naval Intelligence, and a guy named Moultrie, a muckety-muck from the Pentagon. And it, it became pretty clear from that presentation that they were trying to diminish public interest in this topic and to, to sort of minimize how important this issue is. And the USS Russell is one of the examples that, that got brought up. By the way, they also mentioned your name in the in the course of this, the, the chairman of this commission. Uh, he mentions Corbell, and I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to have it here at the end of this after he mentions <laughs> your name on the, in the public hearing. Uh, and then they, they, they're asked, Adam, Adam Schiff, a uh, congressman from California, asks a very pointed question from this guy, Scott Bray, who had kind of breezed over these things. Ah, yeah, the USS Russell, this pyramid stuff, it's just a, a trick of the... The, the lens from the, the um, night, night vision. Scott Bray says, after Adam Schiff asks him a question, so have you done your own tests and studies to figure out if that, that pyramid effect can be duplicated? And Scott Bray's answer was, um, the UAP task force is aware of studies that have done that, which is a very lawyerly sort of a weaselly language way to avoid the question. We're aware of studies that have been done doesn't say we've done them, doesn't yeah. say the Navy did them, or, and it doesn't say we did studies after the UAP task force to discredit this, because there was no organization. The new organization, Arrow, that was called AIMSOG for a while, didn't exist. It had no director, it had no staff. So them trying to dismiss these cases, including the Russell and Omaha, mm -hmm. 
with one sweep of their hand was an indication of what we're going to see in the future, I think, of the Pentagon. They want this to go away. They want media to stop asking questions. They want the public to stop demanding answers. And uh, they're going to try to minimize it every step of the yeah, way. We've, we've certainly seen the pressure put on people to not be poking around. So, so two things. One is I'm kind of glad. Uh, I, I thought I was hallucinating when they brought up my name in the congressional hearing. I literally thought I was hallucinating. Oh, I'm screwed. I got to do some news reports now and I'm really hallucinating. But I think he did that. I'm hoping to try to you know, put it on record and protect us because journalists who obtain stuff, right? They even ask some question later, like, are there going to be any you know, repercussions for people? Journalism should be alive and well in America. And so that's what I was hoping that was about. Now, Here's the deal, man. We we are in a new a new time where where people are asking for, for answers on this, and and our government is trying to get together to to best answers. We have a report that will be coming very soon, but additionally, just recently, the the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023 passed, and it is a historic piece of legislation. It provides a, a UFO whistleblower clause that says if you have been reverse engineering UFOs for the United States military and you feel this has been hidden from Congress, you can come forward to us. I mean, I don't know who's going to come forward from like Lockheed or something like that, but at least it well, is- Well, actually, not- we do know. Well, we do know. <laughs> okay. But I'm just saying it's a big risk for people yeah. to come forward still. But I'm just saying we're living in a different time where there is some hope that this process will work, that people that have worked in these UFO exploitation, reverse engineering programs can come forward through a legal fashion and say, yes, I'm part of this program. This is what we're doing. Congress, Senate, they represent us and they want to know because we want to know. We all want to know. So this could be a very interesting year for UFOs. Well, I mentioned that we had released some videos and then provided them, made sure that they were available to the Pentagon, which hadn't seen some of it. And then uh, inquiries were sent to the Pentagon, the PIO. And uh, they had to respond. And they, the first three times that they said, yes, 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 it's legitimate. It was recorded by the Navy. We were flabbergasted. And yeah. so was everyone else. Yeah. But after that, they, st- they clammed up. Then yeah. they said, we can, can't respond to that anymore because I think they changed the policy, right? Yeah. Well, that, so that's a whole another thing. Now, anything UFO related is inherently classified or something to that level. Look, there's always going to be one hand trying to cover up what the other hand's doing when it comes to UFOs in our government. We have more enough than enough evidence to know the phenomenon is real, that it is uh, not us and not some known foreign nation, but we're going to get there in our thought process together, I'm sure, by having guests on and doing this. Um, I think we should try to, to give people something that they didn't have yesterday, something that's new today, and kind of describe a little bit about it. There'll be more context put out about it soon. But yeah, I think- we want to encourage people to go ahead and continue to reach out to us and okay. send us information, and we will protect your identity if that's necessary, yeah. protect the source of the information. A lot of that information is coming in to both of us, yeah. and uh, we're going to give an example. Yeah. So... Um, when people come with information, in this case, to me, an image, I need to make sure if this is a legitimate image and story behind it. Uh, it, it is a military filmed image, an intelligence agency filmed image, and it's called the Mosul Orb. Mosul, Iraq. Yeah, correct. Yeah, this is an image taken over northern Iraq. And you know this is fine to put out the image itself, and the, I have some detailed information about it. But here's the very basics: 
This is in the UFO category within our intelligence community. This is an example of one of the UFOs that our military and intelligence community is looking at. It's just one of many images. Uh, this one is actually a still from a video. Uh, it's a brief video, maybe four seconds, where this orb or this metallic looking ball runs alongside a spy plane. And it is shown in this footage moving alongside the plane without dropping in altitude at all. I don't know if it is a U UFO or what a UFO is. It's unidentified, but this is within, uh, I, I don't know how to say this. This is within, this is part of the conversation of our intelligence community. This is an example of what they're looking at. I know when I first saw it, when you first showed it to me, uh, I thought to the USS Omaha. I mean, it's a heck of a lot similar to the craft that was flying around there. Isn't it funny? UFOs are often reported in four basic shapes. You've got spheres, pyramids, cubes and cigars. I mean, it's like these very fundamental shapes, uh, totally not aerodynamic right. at all, yeah. right? Or cubes in spheres. Yeah. Yes, spheres in cubes. Yeah, spheres. those are not exactly Well, none of them. You got a flying cube, a you know, flying sphere, you know, a flying pyramid and a flying cigar. I mean, these these shapes are not aerodynamic. So for purposes of the, the people listening by audio, they're not going to be able to see this image unless they look it up. But there yeah, it but is. look it up. There it yeah, is. There yeah, it so. is. Look, there's no one piece of evidence or footage that is groundbreaking, especially still imagery. But I wanted people today to have a sense of some of the stuff that we're going to be releasing on this podcast, and again, this is a reconnaissance plane in northern Iraq, and this is a, from a four-second video where this metallic sphere moves alongside the craft without any descent, any falling in any way. And this is one of the pieces of video and photographic evidence that is within the intelligence community saying, this is a UFO. We caught one. What can we determine from it? And there's just so much of this stuff. You'll never see this in the public realm other than right here is my point. Um, so over the course of the next months yeah. for um, Weaponized, yeah. we will be covering UFOs in great detail. We will be sharing uh, statements, interviews with people who have never come forward before. We physically will be here with us. We'll physically yeah. be here. We'll be talking to some people who are well-known in the field. We'll mm -hmm. be talking to people who are well-known in other fields. We are not going to only cover UFOs, but look at conspiracies and cover-ups and documents, crimes, organized crime, the mafia, uh, celebrities. Uh, we're going to cast a pretty wide net and try to keep things interesting. Anything that keeps me weaponized, man. I mean, it's like anything that I lose sleep over. Yeah. I mean, this is the idea. Things that you and I are interested in, but I think that our, our audience will also find very interesting. But I'm just glad that we, we have these talks all the time. You know, I come work at your place, you come to mind. And we get into all these cool things that people miss context on. They miss the edges because they just see the news report and then they make crazy statements about it. This gives a lot more information, I think, a way for us to really flesh out some of the stories that I don't know how we would put out in other ways. This right. is a real opportunity, I think, for the public to see your and my uh, conversations about this stuff. Want to make it fun? You know, some okay. of this would spill over into my news reports, into your yeah, films, sure. into Coast to Coast, where I host a, yeah. a show on Sunday nights a couple times a month and 
And we want to make it fun and interesting. And we're going to be asking our listeners to give us input and send us stuff and give us ideas. Yeah, it definitely seems to me there's a participatory element. Uh, but the, the main thing is, I'm just glad that you and I get to finally have these sit-downs, even though I don't have a beer in front of me. We get to have these sit-downs and have these talks a little bit more in depth on our time in our own way. And I'm glad that other people can listen to that and see if they find value in that. I'm excited about our guests. I'm excited about having people sit right here who I've always wanted to talk to and find out what's the truth about you. Oh, I know who's coming next. Oh, yeah. I know do. who the first guest is yeah, going to be. It's going to be good. So, All right. Yeah, thanks for being with us for yeah. the first Weaponized. Yeah, and, there we go. Uh, look forward to having future conversations and a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Follow and listen to Weaponize, the presentation of Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, Dark Horse Entertainment, and Cadence 13 Studios. Available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.